Hey guys, as you probably know, Instride is brought to you by Ride IQ. And instead of telling you about Ride IQ, I'm going to read an excerpt from a recent review in the App Store. The headline is Solo Game Changer. It's five stars. It says, not only do each of my rides have more consistency, but the noticeable improvement in both myself and my horses is incredible. I'm in constant awe at the people in this community and the unending support that is given to members from coaches. Yes, you read that correctly. The coaches are very much involved in the day-to-day of the private community that comes along with the app. Whether answering questions, giving feedback, or celebrating wins, there's always someone jumping in when the need arrives. This review continues on, but I know you want to get to today's episode. So if you haven't tried Ride IQ yet, there's a two week totally risk free free trial. We would love to have you give it a go and you get access to everything that Ride IQ offers. Just head to ride-iq.com to sign up and enjoy the episode. On today's episode of In Stride, Sinead talks to Grand Prix dressage rider and trainer Berend Heelbron. Berend is originally from Holland and graduated from the Dutch Equestrian Center NHC, one of the world's most recognized colleges specializing in equestrian education. In 1987, Berend moved to the U.S. where he eventually started his own training business in New Hampshire. In 2015, he and his wife Anne-Marie moved to Ocala, Florida where they run Islands Farms. Barron and Sinead discuss his ideas surrounding dressage training and coaching, including how to teach the horse and rider as a pair. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, everyone. I am really excited to welcome who I consider a a good friend now. Barron, how are you? I am very well, Sinead. Awesome. Well, it's so funny. I was thinking today, like, I couldn't believe that I stumbled into you kind of, you're about, I don't know, three miles away from our farm here at Copperline. And I, yeah, I think about, (laughs) yeah. And, and living in a a community with a bunch of event riders and dressage riders and horse people. And I thought, oh my God, this gem is this hidden gem is right down the road. (laughs) And then the more I started riding with you, the more I realized just because I didn't know you were there didn't mean that everybody else didn't. And you're not a very hidden gem because it seems like everybody knows <laughs> knows what a genius you are. And everybody keeps telling me. So I must have been under a rock. But <laughs> I, uh, I thought maybe we could start out a little bit with you talking a little about your history with horses and how you got started in horses. And then we can move into maybe your experience at school and, and that type of thing. What do you think? So I was 13. I was interested in horses. My mother's girlfriend or a friend of hers had a, a riding facility. And my parents went on vacation to England. And I wanted to go on pony camp. <laughs> Just on the blue moon. <laughs> and that's how I got started. <laughs> and where where were you? Where Were you in the Netherlands? I was, uh, I was in the Netherlands, yeah. Mm. So that is how I got actually introduced. Mm-hmm. And I did a, a very quick course for two weeks and I rode twice a day mm-hmm. to get the beginning so that I could go on pony camp and the Dartmoor in England. Oh, wow. So, so, did, uh, so you were in the Netherlands or that you went and did that in England? You went and did that. So I went to England to do the pony camp, but mm-hmm. I did in Holland uh, the quick course for riding. 
Gotcha. Cool. To get the basics. Gotcha. So. And so then what? <laughs> then, when I came back, I was so hooked that I wanted to proceed it and I want to have regular lessons. And my parents allowed that and they supported that. So I joined in first with a schooling program, not an own horse. And I went on a weekly basis to a riding school. Mm-hmm. And then I started to work off my lessons in the barn on the weekends. And then I started even including teaching. And I started to love it so much that I wanted to make it a profession. But my parents were not 100% behind that. Hmm. They said there's no money to be made in. And so I followed their advice. And long story short, I went to a florist school for seven years. Oh, my God. And have a degree in that in landscaping and the whole shebang. Really? Everything. See, I didn't know oh, that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What made you pick that? That's so interesting. The, well, I did not know what I wanted to be. So I did one year. Have, apparently, you have one of those testings. I don't know if you have that in America, too. And they test you what is good if you're practical, theoretically, or what what is a good job for you. And I was a very practical person. So florist, uh, goldsmith, architect, all those things came above. And therefore, I'm not a very theoretical person in school. Mm-hmm. I need to be hands-on. So I chose the florist wow. industry. Seven years? Seven years, yeah. Can you make flowers? I mean, what do you, with seven years, how do you? <laughs> <laughs> so I did all aspects. So I did architectural drawings. I did this also with diseases and landscaping and then i did flower arrangements so when anna marie and i got uh, married i did all the bouquet i made all the bouquets for our wedding really yeah <laughs> that is so cool that's so cool so you did that for seven years and then and were with you the, doing horses uh, at with, the same time well yes i still was doing horses but that was with the understanding that i had a fallback if i went into the horses and the horses didn't work out i had to mm-hmm. had something to fall back on Mm-hmm. Wow. So that that was my parents' advice. So they didn't restrict to go to that school, but they advised to do first something different. So interesting. And then I went to a four-year program in Holland, and this is the Barider School that is equally to Warendorf and the British Association and in French, the Saumur. Mm-hmm. And so I did that school, and at that time it was half private and it was a strict school. You had to do a selection trial and you could only do that twice. You could only fail once. And then you were, after that, you were not accepted anymore. And so I went through that all in one piece without failing for four years. And um, what can you, I, I, because this, the concept of, I mean, I think for a lot of us in America, the concept of this type of school is really unique. So I might sound like an idiot. So it is equivalent to a a college degree, a university. In equestrian. In equestrian. But say, example, when I came to the United States and I applied for a green card, they saw my background at university as a master's degree. Oh, so it's not like what you do over here with an an equine program and it is kind of a bachelor or it's actually even lower than that. Mm-hmm. No, th- this is, uh, you're certified and you have to do languages 
you have to do psychology, you have to do bookkeeping, you have technically on the whole business, it's like a business school based on horses. Wow. And you have to learn all aspects from the whole entire sport, or at least the program, what we did. Mm -hmm. So we had to do jumping, eventing, dressage, driving, soaky, trotters, vaulting, you name it. So that is uh, the except thing. What we did not do is the Western hmm. and uh, natural horsemanship that, that we did not do, but every other aspect we did, we did it. And then we have to teach in that. We have to get, be able to also give lectures. We do stable management. We have to learn to build courses. We have to be like a veterinarian assistant. We have to be able to shoe. The basic shoeing then, and what else? God. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So you can only fail once during those four years. Mm -hmm. So it was tough. It was military. It's, uh, it, it, you stayed in school for four months, and then you have to do an apprenticeship the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. And then you have to write essays what you're doing over the rest of the year. And where you do your apprenticeship, they has to be qualified by the school. So you cannot just randomly pick somebody. Mm -hmm. And um, who did you after, do your apprenticeships with? I did that with a barn where I actually wrote already because she did the same program as we did, as mm -hmm. I did. And you could only, in Holland at the time, you could only open a barn if you were licensed. Mm -hmm. So like here in America, you can actually open a school, whoever you are, or whatever, you, who you are. In Holland, you have to have a title. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you cannot open a school. And that is for the protection of the horses and the people. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing as a doctor or a lawyer. Right. To able to practice that. Why do you think in, well, because you've lived in the States now since the mid 80s? 87. 87. Since 87. Uh, so and why do you think that schools like that don't exist here? I think it is very difficult because the country is so huge and wherefore the school was supported by the state and the government. So everybody could sign up technically mm -hmm. at the end, not when it was private because that was much more, it, it was different controlled. Mm -hmm. But later on when I left, it was the government took over. Right. And... I think it is so big over here that in order to follow a program and to get a united feeling like people has to be licensed in order to teach, I think to get that off the ground is extremely difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And also the expenses to go to a school like that, it's, it, A, it is expensive. But you have to provide your own horse and sometimes you need to have two horses. And because at the end of the four years, you have to show that you can train up to Grand Prix in the size, ride a mini Prix in the jumping, stadium jumping, but you have to also do that on three other horses. Wow. On strange horses. So you have to show all those basics. Hmm. <laughs> That's so interesting. So how many people were at the school? To give you an idea how tough our school was, we started with a class of 25. And there's only two of us left oh at the end of the four years. Like alive? <laughs> or, or everybody like literally passed through. Really? 
Wow. Yes. And also that we came in once through the whole program without yeah. failing at all. Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. And is that comparable to Warendorf or Samir? Yeah, Warendorf is about about the exact same program. So they have either the rider by itself. So you can choose as a rider. I did the full program because I was interested also in the management and in the bookkeeping part and everything. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's it's that's so interesting because I feel like here, well, I mean, yeah, anybody, I mean, we all know this, that anybody can be a trainer or open a barn, but also there aren't a lot business skills that are taught in how to actually manage your, your equestrian business. I mean, we kind of joke about it a lot that even calling it a business is funny. Oh, no, it's very hard. So, say, example, we had even letter work. So we had to be able to repair letter and make your own halters and then repair wow. woodwork so mm -hmm. that if something would happen to your fences or your jumps that you were able to replace that yourself to to actually save cost. Interesting. Wow. So, and then when you were in that, were you at that point already specializing in dressage or were you? No, we could not. So we had to do all the aspects and we had to do all four years of that. Gotcha. Okay. And then after that, they tried, but they never succeeded that. They tried to specialize the fifth year for dressage. But everybody who was finished, they were like, okay, we're done with school. We're, we're going to specialize on our own. Yeah. Yeah. So when you left there, what? where did you, is that when you come to, came to the? So I did one year apprenticeship at a really big horse dealer in, in Holland. Mm -hmm. And was at that time was the biggest in Europe. And when I was there, there was a jumping facility. Mm -hmm. And I knew if I would work there, I would actually guarantee the job. So I was offered a job almost everywhere in Europe, like Italy, Switzerland, Germany. Riding. Raymond. Riding, uh, yeah, as a, as a rider. And then mm -hmm. I actually ran into Belinda Naren, who at that time was Belinda Bowden, who actually were, wrote at the uh, U.S. team in Seoul. And she actually requested if I would could work for her and ride and compete her young horses. But at that time, I was still in school, and I didn't want to give up the last year. So I lost that last year. I didn't lose that last year, but I lost that job. And I connected back to her, asked her if I could have that job again. And he says, no, I already give it to somebody else, which is understandable. Yeah. But she helped me to find another job. Mm-hmm. That was in New Jersey, and I don't know if that is good to mention, <laughs> but that was not a good experience. Oh, no, in New Jersey. Yeah, it was a bad oh, okay. experience. I'm leaving the names out. <laughs> but it was a we'll really bad experience. <laughs> oh, no. So then friends of my family came to visit, and they said, no, you need to leave here. This is unhealthy. They were from Boston area. I went up to Boston to visit her. And I was almost ready to go back home. And Anna Maria at that time did an apprenticeship underneath me because she went to the same school. Mm -hmm. And so we were ready to go home. And then on a bus tour, because we wanted to visit Boston, I overheard people talking about horses. And I said to Anna Maria, I said, can I try one more time to talk to these people? Maybe they know somebody of a job or whatever. So I walked rudely up to them and said, uh, excuse me, I overheard you guys talking about horses. Do you know anybody 
in this area, the Boston area, that might be interesting for me to maybe inquire a job. Mm-hmm. So they wrote actually very nicely some names, which it happened to be Robert Dover, one of them. No way. Yeah. And I was like, okay, and I'm ready. That's the only one that I'm going to try because at least he has a reputation and he's riding right now in the Olympics. And I probably have a, a decent shot. Yeah. So I went to Hamilton and because he was stationed there and I walked literally into a lesson there and I said, Robert, I'm Baron. You don't know me. I know you from the Chronicle and everybody else. This is what I'm interested in. And I'm looking for a job. Uh, are you able to help me? And then he asked me who I worked for, which I was not going to mention any names. And he says, mm-hmm. oh, my God, you worked there for four months. You need to write that down everywhere because <laughs> you're going to be hired everywhere. <laughs> I cannot last one minute with that particular person in a run room. <laughs> <laughs> so he, gave, he says, tell me where you stay. Give me your phone number. And I will give you a call. I might know something. And I was like, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It's probably nice talk. I probably will never hear from this guy. It's nice to meet him, but that's it. Probably the end of the story. Yeah. Well, 15 minutes later, when I came home, Barrett, I got a job. You can start tomorrow. I said, <gasps> you're going to be shitting me. I said, are you really? And he says, yeah, with Marty Simonson and his wife. And Marty was at that time the Olympic vet for the event team. Uh-huh. And I was like, but they don't know how I write. They don't know anything. You have only met me with talking. So how can you judge that I'm the right person? So, okay, but well, why don't you come back over? Then you hop on one of my horses. You're, I will give you a lesson and then we'll see how you write and then we'll go from there. And that's what we did. And I was hired. Wow, <laughs> that's incredible. And then he says, you will stay there for one year, and then Marty will help you with getting a clientele, and then you're probably on your own. And yes, I was on my own. Wow. So, and then I lucked even more out. Then I fell with actually the family of General Patton, because she was a student, a granddaughter. Mm -hmm. And she actually uh, was looking for a worker. And I said, oh, I know somebody. And it was Anna Marie because I was mm-hmm. dating her. Mm-hmm. And they hired her. And they sponsored us for a green card. And the daughter of the General Patton actually built a whole entire apartment for us on the house. And said one day, Anna Marie, come look what I built. And she goes like, what do you think? She said, I love it. And she said, well, tomorrow you're going to move in. <laughs> they were together with parent. <laughs> and so we moved in. We never had to pay rent. We could save money. They said, we understand where you are. You want to save money for the future. And we worked there for seven years. Wow. I freelance. He worked for her and rode all the hunt horses. And we had our own horse there as well. And then after seven years, um, we actually bought our own place in New Hampshire. Wow. Whoa. All from all from overhearing a conversation on a bus tour. All from a bus tour. <laughs> uh, yes. Pays to be bold. Pays to, so, to be uh yeah, yeah, listening to eavesdropping. <laughs> I was totally I, I totally lucked out. As in Holland we would say you fell with the nose in the butter. <laughs> uh, 
so you eventually went to New Hampshire and started both of you guys started your own business there is that what you, you yeah we started a family we we bought 57 acres we have an indoor we had 24 stalls we lived above the barn and we had there our whole operation and, what and then was, I did what, clinics it was so it was mainly a training both you and it's Anna a training facility we had borders as well mm -hmm. and then and then Marie mostly stayed home and I did on top of it clinics as well Mm-hmm. Got you. Wow. That's so wild. So in all of this, I mean, at, are you mainly thinking, did you have high competition aspirations? Were you looking to be mainly a trainer? What what was the... I have always, well, it's easy to answer. I always love training. Uh, mm -hmm. That is my priority. I like competing, but I like competing when I'm well prepared. Competing for me is not first priority, even though I love it to do it, but it's not my first priority. Mm -hmm. I love the aspect of a relationship with a horse and getting as far as possible. Gotcha. That's so cool. Okay, we're going to jump around a little bit. So you're, the, well, no, let's not. Let's stay there. Um, so how long <laughs> were you? How long were you in New Hampshire? 21 years. 21 years. And then is and then you decided to move to Florida. How did that? To Florida, well, I had a little bump in the road. I was already actually doing clinics in Florida, and then I had a little bump in the road in 2014. I was diagnosed with cancer, oh, kidney wow. cancer, and so that put me on a hold for a bit. And I could not deal with the cold weather anymore because mm -hmm. it was too much on my body mm -hmm. for some reason. And I moved down to closer to friends that we had here in Reddick. Mm -hmm. And they actually helped us with the tra transition to make the transition between the two properties and to find the property here in Ocala. And that's mm -hmm. how I actually ended up here. Wow. And so how long have you been here full time? 2015. Since 2015. Yeah. So it's, what is it now? Eight years then? Okay. And were you back and forth for a bit or you just made the no, big? No, I made, we, we were very fortunate. We were able to literally sell the place almost on the spot. I'm sure. I'm so, sure. and, and then I was, it of course had a good name. So the people that took over the barn also took over the name of the mm -hmm. barn. So we started with a new name here in Ocala. Mm -hmm. And wow. yeah, that's actually a very smooth transition. Yeah. And yeah. I went actually ahead of Anna Marie and Anna Marie came after almost a month later. Gotcha. Okay. So interesting. So I want to go back to, I, I didn't actually realize until I was looking at something today now that, I mean, I knew you were, you were doing some, some work with our friend, Jake Beerbaum, who's in the yes. natural relationship world. And I didn't actually realize you were doing a symposium with those guys with Ryan Rose and him. Coming up Absolutely. Soon, yeah. right? That's coming up. Yes. And that will be interesting because I've never done something. They wanted to combine that and they wanted yeah. to have the understanding because my motto is I've talked with them. Uh, horsemanship is horsemanship. It mm -hmm. doesn't matter what, w how you look at it, whether you're a driver, Western, whether you do the natural horsemanship. Horsemanship is horsemanship. If you can able to read a good a horse, you can apply, you can identify your horse, you should be able to be successful in, in all aspects. 
when you are training and teaching or, and quote unquote reading a horse, where, where, what is kind of the first thing that you see? What's the first thing that you pick up when you're watching? Or For training? me, it's more the combination. It's not mm -hmm. so much the horse independently because the horse is actually made by the rider or by the per people around them. Mm -hmm. You can see it if you, if over the years, if you say, example, you go to sales barns, you can see how horses behave. I pick up immediately whether they are happy or not happy. Mm -hmm. you, you, that environment sets already the kind of a standard, the way how you're being greeted by the animals. Mm -hmm. uh, it tells something right away about how the training is, whether it is rough or whether it is pleasant or respectful done. Mm -hmm. So to me, that is already, that's what I look as hints. If mm -hmm. I have people come, uh, often I see is, and, and nobody wants to hear this, but are they spoiling their horse? Do they understand the boundary? Do they understand the nature of the horse in the aspect? How, how do they grow up in the wild? Are we humanizing them too much or not? Is it fair or is it not fair? Do they understand that concept? Mm -hmm. So I'm judging it often how a person comes in, how they walk the horse, how they walk beside the horse, how is the horse reacting to all this? How is the rider reacting to the environment and the surroundings? Does it respond scared? Does it doesn't not? Is it brave or is it bold or is it almost too direct, etc., mm -hmm. etc.? So you have to calculate because I think in nature a horse is a kind animal. I don't think there's a mean animal in it. It's a flighting flight animal. So I think often the problems that occur or I'm now going immediately to problems, is often created by us. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, you have different people characters too. I mean, you have nervous people, you have laid-back people, you have, and you have with horses, you have characters in there too. But it's often the combination that sets the tone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what is in your time, because... I mean, you're teaching the whole, the full gambit. I mean, you've got a strong amateur clientele. You have a professional clientele. You've got straight dressage. You've taught para. You've got eventers. You've got a little bit of of everything. Are there one or two, like if you could, kind of, like one or two misunderstandings that you, that are a common thread across everything? Something that if you could just like put it on a billboard. <laughs> uh, yes, I think there's a very big difference with it between the event world and the dressage world. What mm. I feel is I do see a hiccup on the understanding of the AIDS. Mm. There is a lot of holding in the event world with their legs. And I personally don't believe in that. I think less is more. I think if you have a conversation with somebody, you pass in order to have somebody else answer it. I mm. think if you have a constant communication by holding your leg constantly on, I think you quit the communication. To me, it's like holding a girth or t t getting a three-year-old broke to a girth in a saddle. It's constant pressure, and eventually they don't buck anymore. Or they don't react to it. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that is a misconcept. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes I see a misconcept about turning eights. In the event world, if I may criticize that, uh, they turn a lot on the outside eights. Mm -hmm. rather than the physic, uh, really looking at the physic. And I don't say that everybody does that, but I generalize it right now. 
I, I run into it quite often. So mm -hmm. I don't want to say that everybody teaches the same way, but there's a lot. Mm -hmm. And in the dressage world, that is slightly different. But then, on the other hand, the eventers that go over into dressage have a better understanding because they have the experience of jumping, riding forwards. And again, there they have a, a benefit that they have learned to ride forwards because of the fence. Mm -hmm. Wherefore, a pure dressage rider is not open to that other spectrum mm -hmm. and often don't ride enough forwards. Right, right. Hi, everyone. I wanted to take this opportunity to give you some inside information on what makes Tota Saddles different. This new Tota Freedom Jump Line, which we were lucky enough to help design, is contoured away from the shoulder and the shoulder muscle, not only to allow new freedom of movement, but it encourages a more uphill balance and an and effortless comfort for the horse. The new balance puts the rider in harmony in a connected and powerful way. One more amazing perk of this saddle is that it has a metal tree, meaning you can fit it to any horse you have now and any horse that enters your barn in the future. At Copperline, we pride ourselves in a progressive horse first approach. And when we met Charlie and learned that his Tota comfort system was founded on an understanding of the horse's biomechanics, maximizing performance and the total comfort of the horse, we knew we had to work with this team. Please check out the Dressage Connection or follow the Tota Comfort System on Facebook or Instagram. Like many guests on this podcast, one of Tick and my main motivators is to reach our full potential in high-performance horse sports. Our belief and strategies are rooted in horse behavior and exploring what's possible in the human and horse relationship. This journey is not possible without our community. We are excited to announce a few seats at the main table, as well as an easy access point to Copperline Farm and horse ownership. Check out the ACE Syndicate and the Journey Syndicate at CopperlineEquestrian.com. Find out about the horses these syndicates own, the difference between A and B shares, and how you can experience horse sport as part of our team here at Copperline. And if you'd like to listen to In Stride ad-free, please head on over and sign up to be a member at Ride IQ. And now back to the podcast. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that really stood out for me when I first went over there was that, I, I mean, I didn't, yeah, was just making sure that the horse was responsible for the engine and that my yes. leg wasn't constantly on. Do you feel like there's a difference as far as flat riding and jump riding as far as how much leg you need to have on the horse? I think it shouldn't be. I don't think it should be at all. I mean, I think the concept, and I think that is how people take. I mean, I can say, I say sometimes to people, if I mention the color green, what color is in your head? Bright, dark, in between. So a supportive leg doesn't have to be tight. Mm -hmm. A leg can be there. It can be relaxed. It can be still communicating. But it doesn't have to be tight. And I think there is sometimes, and that's the same thing with contact. I see that people interpret contact as a certain amount of weight. Mm -hmm. It is not measured on a weight. It's measured on the throughness of the horse and the elasticity. So in Germany, for example, and not even in Holland, they have actually different words like Durchlässigkeit, Schwung. They have those words indicate actually 
already a form in within that connection. So if you if you have that word achieve, for example, durchlässigkeit that's coming through, you, you expect the horse to look elastic over the back, mm-hmm. through the back, a certain position. So it that word covers a lot already with the understanding of what you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. Wherefore, I think over here when I talk about contact or when people talk about an outside rain, they have the feeling that so long they feel some weight or a, a certain amount of weight in their understanding in their head, that means now my horse is in the outside rain. Mm-hmm. To me, that is not always correct. So it depends on how your horse responds. And, and yes, your basic, you have basics in your aids, like you have your leg aid outside, like behind the girth, in a leg on the girth, in a circle, for example, or for a flying change or for a show, shoulder in. That is your basics. But you also have to look at your horse. Is your horse coming with a problem? Is your horse coming with a crookedness? Is your horse has a, a, a medical history that caused um, that he has a handicap, like a club foot or a weak stifle or whatever? So mm-hmm. that creates irregularities. And because of the irregularities, there is a muscle development that is slightly off. How are you going to correct that? Mm-hmm. How so are you? You have to keep that. Yeah. <laughs> How do so, you correct it? <laughs> <laughs> you have to keep that in mind, too. Yeah. So uh, some people that say, okay, what I do left, I have to do right. I disagree on that, too. If mm-hmm. I am in rehab and if I had a broken leg, I cannot keep it equal. I have to focus on that leg that was broken to rehab that in a better place. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it, 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 it's much deeper than it is just following a pattern. Same thing with with. And I hate to say this, but you have athletes and you have non-athletes and you have people that a non-athlete can become an athlete but will never be an Olympian. Or you have an athlete that can be an Olympian but don't want to be an Olympian. You have different categories. So you have that with horses too. You have athletes and Mm non-athletes. And then it is the expectation of the human being. What do you want? What do you want to develop? How do you want to develop that? And what is your own expectation? And then are you realistic to that? And are you realistic to your horse to that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you, how often do you find that you need to really have that in America? We call it a come to Jesus. Uh, I don't know what you call it in Holland. I do it every time, every day. I don't care if people, I I feel, I, I shouldn't say I don't care. I do care. Because I do this with passion and I like what I'm doing, but I'm not catering to people what they want to hear. Mm. I refuse that. Then you find, then you're better off to find somebody else to teach you. Mm-hmm. I much rather be realistic, and it's sometimes hard, and it's sometimes hard to understand. But I think for the well-being of the horse, you have to be realistic because the horse is the victim. Mm. So the horse depends on us. Mm-hmm. So. I think, and sometimes we don't like to hear those things, but then can you alter it? Or if you can't alter it or you cannot do it financially, are there other ways then? Or can you still make your relationship in a better place? Right. So that's why I'm a strong believer also in teaching a variety of people because I think everybody has the right to learn. And everybody has the right to learn with the best. 
I don't think that that should be restricted. When you are teaching, have you found that I've, I have found in my experience uh, riding with you, even though it's been for a short period of time, I don't notice, like, I, I feel like you have a really good flow of conversation about how you deliver your message and how you speak. And then when I go back and watch the videos or lessons, there is a constant dialogue going on. Is that yeah. a, is that your, you know, when you think about teaching styles or learning styles, are, when you come kind of at it, is that kind of something that you have found really works for people? It's that you've got the headset. I'm talking you through all of this. There's a constant kind of back and forth when you're here or not really a back and forth. I think that's the first thing you told so me. You I did, me. <laughs> so I, the thing is, I, I'm looking at out of my own experience as okay. a student and when, when I brought up and I've had lessons from several instructors. Some explain better than others. I think that what I found myself is that I had to learn for myself and I rather have an instructor that teach me through things that when I come out of a lesson that I feel like, can I apply this now on my own? Can I reason this on my own? Do I understand what this person is saying? Or is this person telling me almost like a remote control, do this, do this, do this, but I really don't know how I got there anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. So I would like to know how I got there. So my motto of teaching is, can I make it understandable to my client or my student when they come out of the lesson, can they reapply it? And then the biggest motto is less is more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So interesting. Um, you had said earlier when you were at school that there was psychology was part of what you were learning. Was that for the horses or for the people? That was more for the people than for the horses. So you're being tested because it is a very tough industry. And as you know, you have different, I mean, you have different people and people address in clients. So they can make it either very difficult for you or they can make it easy. You're very understanding people or you have less understanding people. In every aspect, they all look out for themselves and they want the best for them. But that doesn't mean that it's always easy. Mm -hmm. We have learned uh, that you have to co your coping skills, so you have to learn to address the customer in a way that, yes, do you get the message across, but also don't you defend them and make them angry. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're also dealing with that aspect. Mm-hmm. So they're teaching you the skills. So then also they teach you the skills like they make it on purpose difficult, like they have a client, they pretend to be a client in the lesson, you give a lesson, and they that they are, are very difficult, they don't want to really listen, or they argue or whatever. How are you dealing with that situation? How are you going to go forwards with that hmm. without being angry? That's so cool. It's so cool. And then also in your own aspect in real life too, like, for example, the barn manager when we did in school work, he would suddenly start yelling. How would you take that? How would you deal with that? And they literally test you on that. Now, there are several kids that actually left crying and said, there, you can't take this and we're done. Really? Oh, yes. <laughs> literally done. I mean, it was in that sense military mm -hmm. so in the weekends when we before we went home they actually went with white gloves on your stall you had to wash your stalls you had to 
clean your horses and they literally went with a white cloth everywhere. And if your horse was not clean and your tech was not clean, you could stay. You could not go home. That is <laughs> so cool and interesting. <laughs> um, I would love to, and this is a little bit out of selfish, selfishness on my part. I would love to kind of go through some of these dressage just words with you and hear your, I just feel like you have really cool, I don't know, ideas behind everything such yeah. as collection harmony. So I would love to just throw some words at you and, and because yes. I think, you know, like the word collection, like, is that a good word? Is that a bad word? <laughs> collection is a very good word. I think mm -hmm. collection is misunderstood with slowing down often. Mm. If I, if you now pick a word, that's what's come first to my head that a lot of people mis misunderstand that as slowing down a collection is actually a bringing forwards of a hind leg under engaging the croup of the horse and sitting down and literally and figuratively lifting the front end up through engaging the back and mm -hmm. therefore getting more suspension in the stride now a form of collection is not necessarily a piaf or a passage or a regular collected trot. An extended trot or a medium trot is a form of collection. People don't understand that often or don't realize that, but the horse still has to sit down and lift up. Mm -hmm. Wherefore, a lengthening stride in like in first level is not a form of collection. Hmm. That's so interesting. So I'm I want to share a little light bulb moment I had on I went eventing yesterday yeah and, and I on the the Disney horse that you helped me with the white yeah. face one and I found on cross country with him sometimes for looking at him you've seen him he looks quite uphill but sometimes yeah. in the canter he gets a bit croup high and when he starts and whatnot and I find yes. he does that galloping and um and I realized that what I was doing when I was getting that feeling on cross country was trying to go faster, but his stride yeah. was getting longer and therefore he was going longer in a worse balance and then not wanting to go any more. And I, for some reason in the cross country warm up, remembered the dressage lessons that we were having. And so when I got that feeling, instead of kicking him longer, yeah, I put him shorter and then let him go. And then he ran. <laughs> and well, you have to think about this way. After speeding up, falls always slowing down. After slowing down, falls always speeding up. Mm. So you have to find it in between so that you can find the stride that you want to find. Yeah, super, super interesting. Because just when you said that, like there's in that sense, then there's collection in the jumping phases. There's collection on cross country to then lengthen. There is a form, but galloping is actually a four beat. So technically, or was truly galloping is actually four beating. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Oh, well, we talked a little bit about connection. Yes. And, and I find that that like connection is one of the like biggest over over like there's so many different definitions, so many different ways you can think about it. Like you can think about it through the rain, through the leg, through the energy, through e everything. Like where do you even start with connection? Connection to me is there's a harmony and quietness between the rider and the horse. That to me is a connection. Whether that is less than an ounce or less than a gram, that's still considered a connection in the, in, in the reins. It is the elasticity and the throughness of the horse and therefore the ability of finding completely the balance. And if the horse is completely balanced, then you have suppleness. 
and therefore the suppleness, the lateral movement and all the other movements, upper level movements are very easy. Mm. Do you think that each horse has a different feeling in the rain or that they should have, they should be light, it should be light? In general, it should be light, but there's a lot of aspects because every horse is built differently. So one horse comes higher, the neck carriage comes higher out of the shoulder some than other horses. Some horses are lower. Some horses have a shorter neck and other ones have a longer neck. Other ones have a, a, a the jaw space in between is very narrow. So therefore, at giving up the jaw is harder. If that is, if normally a general rule, if you can put a fist between the jaw, there's plenty of room to give. So there, there are certain aspects, same thing in the mouth. I mean, the empty place where the bit rests on, the bone structure can be sharp, it can be rounded. That depends on how sensitive the horse is as well, how sensitive the bit works on that horse. So in all aspects, yeah, that is... Does all a factor in general? Every once they carry themselves, they can be light. That is mm -hmm. the same thing as you and me. I mean, we walk our hands. Have, move if we have no handicaps or we have no issues, then our arms move freely and without restriction. Mm -hmm. Yes, we can be a little heavy footed and we can stomp a little bit, or we be light footed and barely here. But in general, it's effortless. So that is a horse should go effortless, not with a lot of effort. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing because you see so many different styles and some of some really strong. I mean, we went to Omaha to the World Cup and it was so cool yeah. to watch. And, you know, it was the, the dressage and the show jumping. And it was interesting because there were so many different styles. It was so interesting to watch because some of the riders that were are very like very decorated riders went in and I think you had said the word before, like you had said the word manufactured. Yes, like it was impressive. Correct. Like it was impressive as hell to watch, but it was manufactured. And then you had a couple of other riders, some uh, very popular newer riders right now come in and it was like, it, it wouldn't catch your eye, but then you watched it and it was so like beautiful and harmonious but it was a completely different look, you know? Yes. It, and so it's, it can be confusing when you're like, what, what are we supposed to be doing? <laughs> well, the, I think the industry is confusing because there was also for a while, there's the confusion when everything, when Totalus was in, he was a freak of na nature. And I think a lot of people tried to copy that. And then there was this whole very strong argument about rokers and being too deep and, and misused every aspect. I mean, Again, this is a very long story. You can go over and over about those things, and I can talk about hours on that. The bottom line is training is training, and not training is not with everybody in the right hand. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, uh, certainly I'm not in for a roker, but I can guarantee you if you don't do justice to your horse, eventually your horse is not going to do it. Right. And eventually it's going to shut down. It's going to say, no, that's it. I happen to say the ones that can do a correct roker or what is correct or not correct, but have the horse still on their side and being happy, that has to be also considered. So like, are you really doing damage or are you not doing damage? I mean, we can also do damage by just not even doing a roker. 
I think that aspect is sometimes blown out of proportion a little bit. And mm -hmm. now they are so far that it has to be, everything has to be so high that it is almost to a point that people don't recognize that it is not true anymore and they are hollow. And it is so mm -hmm. above the bit that they're so afraid that there is slightly too much roundness that they do other type of damages. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to talk about it because there are so many different views about that. And there are so many criticisms about so many different types of trainers how they look at it. So mm -hmm. it's a very sore subject for a lot of people, but I wish that people were a little bit more lenient to either side, try to become a little bit more in a happy medium and and almost become a little bit more politicians mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. just say, hey, where can we find here a better understanding and where are we still helping the animal? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's probably that it's like the intention or the why that you're doing something is more important than what it is. Exactly. Yeah. So that is, and and because of that, uh, what you saw, saw over there in the show, yes, you will see a big difference. Mm -hmm. But then the interesting part is also, how are they going to score that? Mm -hmm. How are they going to reward that? Because I think also, but at least often by the judges, not so much by us, as riders, if you, you're being judged, they either are going to encourage this or they don't encourage that. Right. So how is the judging programs? How are they, how are they developing that? Are they helping that industry? Yes or no. Mm -hmm. How much do you think horse psychology, horsemanship, that part of it, needs to be brought in more to the sport horse, like the sport disciplines? I think in general, I think people need to read up or need to understand general what horses are about. And I think in general that people have a tendency to humanize uh, an animal because they see them as their friends, what they are, but they're certainly not human beings. Mm -hmm. And yes, they're clever, they're smart, they're intelligent. But you also have to treat them the way how they in nature grow up. I'm a firm believer in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In order to be most successful. So to me, when you when somebody says, and maybe that's the foreign part in me, when somebody says psychology, I immediately get to think that some people get on the phone and start to talk with a psychologist <laughs> or a, a horse reader. Do you see what I say? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. what I often get because people do that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, completely, completely. I guess I I think about it more in thinking and learning about how horses do learn, like how they learn, how they're motivated, how they are in nature, learning that side of it from a I scientific think, point of view. From a scientific, I think it's very simple because a horse is a very habitual animal. So it, you can do positive reinforcement and the positive reinforcement, you can repeat something, but you as a rider or you as a trainer have to look, is the horse understanding it or not? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you bring your child to school, I mean, some are slow learners, some are fast learners, some are like me, it's more uh, practical than theoretically. Mm -hmm. Is that teacher able to adapt to that individual to enhance that the gift that they, each each person or each horse comes with can develop that. Mm. 
rather than treating every horse exactly the same. Yeah, I have one more word. The half halt. <laughs> half halt. It's a very simple thing. No, it's not. Yes, it is. <laughs> half halt is literally a, a, a quickly closing and opening of your hand. Okay. That's what a half halt is. Nothing in the else. Right, the right timing and the right balance with yeah. the right. <laughs> so everybody that talks about stiffing your body, stiffing your this, stiffing your seat, or stiffen that, or use your leg in this. You have to understand any reaction that you do automatically with your hands or with your wrist will somewhere has an effect on your body. Mm. No matter how you look at it. So yeah, in order to keep an upright position, you have to engage for that what you disturb. And it's quickly squeezing and opening of your hand. Mm-hmm. So your natural engage. Now, some people will not do that and they get sloppy or they they slouch or they don't sit upright. So you can encourage, the instructor can encourage, well, if you sit more upright or if you hold your core a little stronger, maybe then the effect of your apples will be better. So right. that may not be misunderstood per individual, but explaining a half hold is just a closing and an opening of your hand. Mm-hmm. And there's a time release on that. Can it be quicker? Can it be slower? Yes, of course. That depends on the moment. You play tennis, you hit that ball every time a little different way. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's a little quicker, sometimes it's a little, a little slower, sometimes it's harder, sometimes it's, it's, it's softer. Right. Is the half hold understood by a horse? That is the second question. Right. If not, how are you going to deal with that? Are you going to deal that with that through an exercise, say, example? Are you now asking him on purposely to walk? Do you make more transitions so that the understanding of that communication will become clearer? Mm-hmm. Okay, I accept your answer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how did you, how did you, out of curiosity, how did you see the fault yourself? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's changed and I've just, it's changed over time and I've heard so many different things about it. Honestly, I probably made it a little bit too complicated to be, to be fair. Most of the time I would have said it, the half fault would have started with my core and my seat as opposed to yeah. my rein. Yeah. And that when you said, well, naturally you sit up straight, like a, you've got responsibility there. So when you close your hand, you're automatically going to engage your core. So you don't have to do that. You don't have to think about it. And when you said that, exactly. I was like, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause if you don't engage your core and you close your hand, you're going to pull yourself forward or you're going to fall back or so. Absolutely. It, so yeah. if you, uh, to me, a, a disturbance, extra disturbance, which some people you need to help them to understand that, mm-hmm. to say, okay, you have to engage your core a little bit better because you get sloppy. But mm-hmm. In general, that's not what a half hold is. A half hold is literally, it's like a definition. What is the definition of no? It's not yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that simple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why is it the why is it that like when I was I was watching some of the European championships, the the dressage, and and now, honestly, at the top level across in, in the eventing, I mean, the guys at the top sit so nicely yeah. and so well. It's, it's, but there is a real, is it because as event riders, we're riding with so much leg and we're taking on so much responsibility, it's just hard to sit up? I mean, absolutely. What, because think it? about it. If you sit on a moving, moving part, or say, example, take ballroom dancing, 
mm-hmm. you are uh, the women. Unfortunately, discrimination now has to fo- <laughs> has to follow the man. Yeah, in the ballroom dancing. Mm-hmm. If you would stiffen your core, or you would stiffen in order to change something, you will completely make a disaster of your whole whole uh, performance. So you have to be in sync. If you are in sync and you don't stiffen, wherefore stiffening can cause you not to be in sync. Because you, if you teach a total beginner rider to post or to sit a trot, because they clam on with their legs so hard, they move themselves this far out of the saddle. Mm-hmm. When you say relax and try to move your hips with the movement, you're actually teaching them to move with the movement exactly and being in sync. So that's a different subject. What is considered being still? So if I have my hand here, my top, my this hand is following the bottom hand. Mm-hmm. That is considered being still. If I hold it still independently and I move, right. that's what you get with the slapping. Right. That's what you get when, a whore, when you hold on too tight with your leg. Right. And so when you have, like a lot of people, we'll talk about it. But that is see. physics. Let me finish this too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is physics too. See, if you hold your legs, for example, put a dollar bill in between your knees and try start walking. It's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Take the dollar bill away and you separate your legs. Your walking becomes easy. Mm-hmm. So then you can see what stiffening does. Yeah. It seems like a simple concept. (laughs) (laughs) To me, it's simple that way. You say it so confidently. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, It's allowing. Yeah. And still at the same time, staying tall. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Engaging at some point. Yes. You can't just, you got to be a a pitcher of water, not just a puddle. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. I want to move on to some of these questions that I sent you. Yeah. Or I'm going to keep asking you all these complex yet simple questions. Yeah. (laughs) All right. What is the biggest lesson a horse has taught you about yourself? Patience. Mm. Literally, patience. If you don't have patience, you don't go anywhere. Yeah. So to me, it's patience. Have you been naturally a patient person or was that a tough grind? No, I'm actually naturally, I've been always patient and naturally I'm very tolerant and very often forgiving. Mm-hmm. Not to a point, don't pass me in a certain way, certain things, but then I'm not anymore. Yeah. yeah. But no, in general, I'm a very patient person. Mm-hmm. I'm a very consistent person too. Yeah. Do you find when you're working with more of your, you know, your competitive riders or people that really have competitive goals that you kind of have to be the voice of like, calm down? (laughs) Yes, sometimes, but I still, but I still try to let, I'm trying always very hard to have my students understand it themselves, even Mm -hmm. when they make a mistake. So sometimes I'd rather have that they mistake and that they say, shame on me that I did this, even although I told it quietly. Mm-hmm. And that we revisit that. I'd much rather see that and that they really learned a valuable lesson on that than me trying to take the upper hand, calm down, calm down, calm down. Right. Because at the um, end, you are alone in that ring. Mm-hmm. So the concept is teaching somebody how to still function without me being there 
Mm-hmm. Do you find that you change your your teaching model when you're at competitions, or do you take or, or no. how do you know? No, absolutely not. I don't like mm-hmm. to change the mode. I might be a little bit considerate in the sense of if the horse is a little nervous and it pick, picks up on the electricity around them because often the show brings that. Mm-hmm. I will maybe be a little bit more forgiving on certain things mm. in the sense of the understanding of the horse, like forgiving, like, okay, that mistake happens. Don't make such a big deal out of it. Let's work with this. Uh, we might have to compromise a little bit to make it out because showing is a little bit different because you have to show the performance and you have to show the judge something, what they want to see. Mm-hmm. And yeah, sometimes you have to think a little bit outside the box there because it's not always going the way how we want it. Mm-hmm. In my training, I would like to set it up in such a way that I have myself well prepared for all those situations and that I don't have to compromise too much. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, no. And it depends on the person too. Do I maybe talk a little less because it gives a calming effect on the rider? I might consider doing that because I feel that that is better. Mm-hmm. Or do the opposite, give them more information, give them more to work, so I take the nervousness away. That right. depends on the client. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, do you have a favorite training or competition mantra that you reference regularly? Mantra meaning? Like saying, like you've said, a, you've said a couple of times that like a motto, like something that you just reference. That's just more. yeah less is more always try to do less yeah yeah i can't remember who said it but i say it all the time somebody said it to me like i need you to do to do less and i need you to do less better yes (laughs) it's like "Mm, okay so Uh, less and patience yeah yeah another concept that is my mantra and i my mantra is definitely not to overdo so mm-hmm. what I find on a competition always extreme, that is what the most extremely difficulty is, is finding the right amount of warm-up. Mm. It's not about 40 minutes. It's not about 30 minutes. When does your horse start to peak? And are you going in the ring when he's starting to peak, not when he peaked in the warm-up? Right. There's so many people say, I want the warm-up. I don't want to hear the word, I want the warm-up. Mm-hmm. I actually want to see the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you, if somebody is thinking about their, you know, like getting really organized and intentional around their warm up, do you do that through, like, it sounds stupid, but a little trial and error? Like, do you practice that at home or how, how do you build your warm up? So the warm up should not be any different than your warm at home. Mm-hmm. No difference. Because I look at it this way that box that you're working in, it's the same box at home. Mm-hmm. No difference. It's the same sandbox. Mm-hmm. So if you require in your training the exact like an active walk, an active trot, an active this and a, a throughness, then I expect if you go to a show, I expect the same thing. Mm-hmm. Now the only thing that might different is the environment. Yeah. And I don't always have control over that, so I have to find the best way to prepare my horse by either taking it to different places and therefore getting a customer. It's not the different places, not because of the different sandbox. Mm-hmm. It's the surroundings. Yeah. 
How much do you practice test writing? In general, that depends again on the person. In general, I don't like to practice a lot of test write. I think it is good to write, to practice a test write. But I think with everything, and again, less is more. Anything with, where you have to say too much, not good. Mm -hmm. So a practice write is to connect all the figures together and the movements together. It's a good idea to do, to, to test the boundaries of saying, okay, where do I have a shortcoming? What is not as flo floating and fluent? Or where do I lose it? Or what do I find difficult as a rider? Or what finds my horse difficult? Mm -hmm. Then, if you have done that test right, then it is your job in your training to incorporate that. Mm -hmm. But the movements of your, of your test should be no different than the movements in your practice. Right. I want that same quality. Mm -hmm. Is there a piece of advice someone gave you along the way that you still reference today? I wrote that a little bit down and I said, once you do, once you do horses or into in the horse, it, it's a full commitment and a responsible ability and they come first. And that's always been told to me. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's what I live by. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, True, true words. <laughs> it's hard to remember that at certain times, but. Yeah. And that is some things, whether we like it or not. Sometimes we like to party. Sometimes we like to go out. Sometimes we like a break. But unfortunately, that horse is waiting in the stall. Mm -hmm. Okay. But they also teach you a life lesson. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you do when you are seeking inspiration? What I do, I always check myself if I'm willing and open to learn new things. Mm. And that brings my inspiration. Mm. If you, I think if you're done learning and done absorbing new things, I think your inspiration is done. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I'm inspired every day. Yeah. <laughs> so by meeting new people, by teaching, teaching every day teaches me still new things. Mm -hmm. because whoever I have in front of me actually is through their character or through their way of looking in life teaches me to approach different things and that inspires me. Hmm. That's so cool. Do you, are you, you know, do you follow the different disciplines? Do you, you know, read or watch videos or podcasts or, or whatnot? Are you, how do you kind no, of not really. Uh, to be honest, no. I, mm -hmm. But I think that is automatically happens because I am I'm helping a lot of competitors. Mm -hmm. So when I'm at the competitions, you're often confronted with that, mm -hmm. and being involved, how they get scored, being involved, how you get judged, you, you can't help it. You you're already getting updated. Yeah. Now that may be updated over the whole entire world. I could have been better on that, but I'm not always like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, a balance there too. I, I, it's, I, I kind of find myself, I have to keep myself in check because I can be kind of crazy focusing on the worldwide sport and everything that's going on. And then it's actually taking away from what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, that, that can happen. Yes. You know, and that you... is per person different too, how they learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So.
Um, and don't right. forget, I'm open to also, see, I'm in the time that I grew up, you have an American system, they have a European system. Mm -hmm. I've now exposed to both. Yeah. Is that hard sometimes? Is it hard for you when, you know, kind of you walk into whether you're at coaching at Kentucky or you're down at Terra Nova or at the horse park or whatnot? Is it hard sometimes to walk into? I, I find sometimes walking into some, it's, it's like an overload of different ways and different methods and different things. Is that, is that hard or is it, have you kind of just. No, I don't, I, I don't find it hard, but I'm not quite understanding your question completely. Like, is it, do you find sometimes when you go to competitions that, that it's inspiring or not inspiring that it's kind of like, whoa, there needs to be more of a system here. There's more systems. Oh, in I have, I, I have sometimes definitely mixed feelings and I don't know if my mixed feelings are always right. Sometimes mm -hmm. I disagree a little bit with the system. And then other times I go like, wow, they're right on the dot. They think exactly the way how I think. Now, mm -hmm. am I right? Maybe not. Maybe yes. Mm -hmm. I wish that there, in general, there was a format and maybe I have to be more active in that. I wish there was more of a group and or lectures be made that mm. was access to the people and more educational, like not only for judges to get your judging license, but maybe have a talk with judges how they look at things, not just mm -hmm. with the test writing thing with one judge, but have a whole group of judges and have a conversation. What is it that you're really looking for? Mm -hmm. How come that sometimes the variety of judges are so far apart? I wish that that was coming a little closer. And the mm -hmm. same thing with instructors. I think we're all preaching for the same thing. Mm. everybody in their own unique way. And we're all having the same goals to get the same answers, trueness, <laughs> harmony, uh, elegance. But it seems to be that there is sometimes a conflict in approaches. And if you then look at horses, sometimes you go like, okay, why is this happening? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, is that a sore subject? Is that a dangerous subject? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's probably, I mean, discussion is always healthy, but it's... I, I think, think so, because there's a lot of people, even like beside me, and that's why I said through learning, you learn a lot more things. I mean, when I do myself, I still, to the days, I take lessons too. I take lessons from Conrad Schumacher. I take lessons from other instructors. Mm -hmm. And when I sometimes go like, okay, that's a good way of looking at it. I, I, I should approach it that way once and I should mm -hmm. get that message because it probably will come over in a different way mm -hmm. to this person. I, was, I wish sometimes that there was more camaraderie between colleagues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. It's, it's, um, and I don't know, I, you know, I don't know if it's the industry or sport or if it's like this all over the place, but it, it feels like it can get, yeah. Like you've kind of, it's always competing and there it's, you're kind of trying to survive and not always thrive. And when you feel like you're thriving and it's really easy to have conversations, it's really easy to discuss because you feel really secure. But if your business is struggling or you're competitively struggling or you're frustrated in your work or not patient, <laughs> it yeah. can sometimes be, you know, you're already on a little bit of the defensive. And so it's hard to maybe collaborate more 
Yeah, and I think collaboration will actually will open the, those doors even more mm -hmm. rather yeah. than shutting it down. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Okay, last question. Have you had an experience or an adversity separate from horses in your life that you feel like has influenced you as a horseman? Meaning life experience, like something happened in your life? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Not not the most fun thing. I mean, I was as a kid bullied hmm. tremendously. Then I lost my father on a very young age. So the father figure was gone. Certain security was gone. Then another event happens as well, which I really don't like to share. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's that it definitely has pushed me to horses. And the horses mm. were to me an outlet in such a way that I could always count on an answer mm. and an honest answer. So if I was unfair, they treated me unfair. If I was fair, they treated me fair. Mm -hmm. So... I felt because of those answers in tremendous comfort. And because of that, it also taught me to survive in situations in interaction with other people or make decisions like, well, I'm going to interact on this or I'm not going to, I'm choosing not to interact on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so, that's interesting the way that you say that about the, the honest answer. I mean, it's, it's Tick and I were having this conversation the other day and we were talking about criticism and how, how to receive it better. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And it's hard because it's like, you can't just open yourself up to anyone because people's intentions can sometimes be Absolutely. Uh, not great. Once you have horses, you're you really committed and you have a responsibility and it teaches you mm -hmm. responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, it works. It works. Yeah. Back and forth such good ways. And like the, the, the feedback and the honesty that you get back if you're paying attention and Absolutely. you're responsible is, is uh, pretty incredible. And that is the same thing when I teach people to ride. Sometimes I go mm -hmm. like, okay, you have done this and this with your horse. And, or when I sit on a horse, I said, oh, it feels like you have lost your temper. So how in the hell do you know that? Mm. Well, your horse is telling on you. Yeah. They're pretty good that way. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> Jerks. <laughs> Jerks. <laughs> uh, well, this has been, this has been awesome. Um, this has been so wonderful. I think we can. We well, can I hope it's helpful. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, this is great. This is so perfect. And I, I just. And I hope that people enjoy it or at least get something out of it. Yeah. No, they, they completely will. I mean, just the half halt in general. Everybody knows what a half halt is now. Cleared up. A <laughs> Good. I hope so. <laughs> Maybe a lot of disagreements. Maybe we get so some questions gonna, about yeah. it. Who knows? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll direct, I'll give them your home phone number. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> uh, well, this has been so wonderful, Baron, and um, I'm sure this will be a huge hit with all of our listeners, and I appreciate the time, and I look awesome. forward to my riding lessons tomorrow. Well, thank you, and I will see you tomorrow. Before you go, I just want to let you know more about Ride IQ. 
At its core, Ride IQ gives everyone access to instruction from the best equestrian coaches in the world. It might sound impossible, but with Ride IQ, you get access to the private mobile app that has hundreds of on-demand, listen-while-you-ride audio lessons taught by top riders and coaches in eventing, hunter jumpers, and dressage. Here's how it works. You look through the app and choose a lesson based on your horse or a skill you're working on. There are lessons for green off-the-track thoroughbreds and nervous horses horses and horses that are behind the leg, as well as lessons that teach every stage of skills like shoulder in or trot lengthenings. Then you tack up and press play and you have a top coach like Doug Payne or Leslie Law or Gina Smith in your ear guiding you every step of the way. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family and leave a review on your podcast app. The best way to support the podcast is to become a Ride IQ member at ride-iq.com. And when you do, we hope you're excited to see that Instride is just one of multiple podcast shows on the app, including hack chats, conversations with coaches, and more. 